Amen. <clears throat> when you're um, shooting a movie um, or uh, writing a book, um, you're very intentional about the way that you set up the particular movie and the scenes. Every scene is really intentional. They don't only just build one from another in terms of the plot. So the scene before is really important for the scene that comes after because of the plot. But what is really important to the author or the scriptwriter or the director is that they are trying to give you a glimpse into the characters in the scene, in the movie. And it's really important as they build the plot that they build the character, that they start to reveal certain aspects and elements of the character. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the scriptures and about God, the greatest author, which the scriptures say that he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. I don't know if you've ever thought about how intentionally God puts together the life of Jesus, making sure that not only do we see this grand plot that ends with the empty grave, but that we get to see these elements of the character of Jesus because of each scene. And so what we're going to be doing over this Easter series is we're going to be looking at what happens in the garden and why it's so important and what happens in the gauntlet. Um, and just quick disclaimer, because my wife said um, that a gauntlet is a glove. Um, and then I checked the dictionary and it, it, it actually is. Um, and so next week I'm not preaching on a glove. Um, I'm preaching on running the gauntlet and, the, and the, the, the journey that Jesus had to go from the garden to the cross. Um, and, then, and then obviously the following week we're going to be looking at the empty grave. But what happens in the garden? What, what, what is intentionally placed in the garden that God himself wanted us to see? And I believe that there's something extremely significant and intentional that has portrayed these deep truths about Jesus and why he did what he did and what the garden extraordinarily gives us insight into, into the life of Jesus. And so we're going to be reading from a passage, pretty much just looking at one passage today, Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 to 46 in the NRV. And I'm going to be jumping and using other translations that may help us give some insight to what happens here. But this is the, the account of the garden. Um, and here's how it starts. It says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. This word Gethsemane, okay, it's the name for the garden, means the olive press. It's a place or occasion of great mental or spiritual suffering, like a season of squeezing, a time of testing. It's not something necessarily that you or I would want to aim our lives at, but we see that it's very intentional that the author, the script writer of Jesus' life, that he had to go through the garden in order to run the gauntlet so that there could be an empty grave. So what is it about this particular garden that the author is trying to show us? There's something extremely significant. Now I would say it like this today, that we need to have, there needs to be a garden in our empty grave theology. For many Christians, we've got this empty grave theology, which is amazing. It's the fact that Jesus went to the cross, died on the cross, three days later was raised again, and because of that, there are no more sins, and there's no more shame, and there's no more guilt, and that we got this um, access not only to the Father, but to eternity. But I think it's incredibly important for each of us to have a garden theology or a garden view of an empty grave 
theology. And we're going to unpack that a little more today. And so this is what the passage says. It says, And Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Two very human emotions. Sorrowful and troubled. In fact, some versions use the word anguished. Other versions use the word grieved and distressed. And the message says, he plunged into agonizing sorrow. The garden starts to reveal these raw emotions that Jesus goes through. It goes on to say this in the verse. It says, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The message version puts it like this. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. The first point that I believe the garden wants to reveal to us is that heaven knows. You ever had that, um, that feeling when something happens to you or you're going through a crisis or life's really difficult and um, you say these words or perhaps you've at least heard other people say them. You go, no one understands. No one understands me. No one knows how I feel. You just don't get it. Ever heard those words come out of anybody else's mouth? Ever uttered them, maybe not out loud, but in your head with this frustration? I'll never forget when our second child, Roman, um, had a reflux. And it took us a little while to understand that he had reflux. Um, and so there was a dark couple of months, to be honest, uh, for us, where uh, we did not sleep. And I don't mean like not normal parents sleep. I mean like we did not sleep. This kid cried and screamed and cried and screamed. We could not, we lived two kilometers from the church. We could not put him in a car seat and buckle him up because he was sitting in his kind of stomach and the acids and whatever. He, we, we, we could not put him in the car seat and drive him from home to here without him going into hysterical panic where he began to choke on like the phlegm because he was so panicked and overwhelmed by the, the reflux that was going on. And we would dead tired and we were dead exhausted and we had no kind of way out and then people would like kind of tap us on the back and go oh we remember those days and I'd look at them and go like you have freaking no idea what we're going through you know somebody would tap me on the back and say oh don't worry those days will come and go you must you must enjoy them <laughs> then like I have to remind myself that I'm a pastor and a Christian because I'd be like you just don't understand. You don't understand. And the truth is, church, many people, most people will not understand what you're going through. They won't understand the struggle. They won't understand, even if you try and like put it into words, they just won't understand what you were going through. And um, the struggles, the pain, the internal conflict, but I believe the God and shouts, heaven knows. I really believe the God and shouts, Heaven knows. The garden is a vital part of the script and story. It shows the humanness of Jesus. This internal wrestle of emotions that he experiences in the garden that are raw and honest and vulnerable and probably most important, relatable. And we see these emotions that are spoken about in the garden like grief and anguish and overwhelmed and exhausted and soul-crushing sorrow. And I hear similar words today. I hear words like, I'm just so overwhelmed. 
Perhaps you've uttered these words. I'm just so stressed. I just feel burnt out. Like I feel like I've got nothing more to give. I hear people utter words like, I'm just feeling anxious or perhaps depressed. People speak about our mental health. And I feel like for many of us, we're in the garden. And it's extremely important for us to have a garden theology and an empty grave theology. And Jesus was not just having a bad day, friends. This wasn't just like a bad moment. This wasn't just a teenage tantrum or two-year-old tantrum. Jesus was so overwhelmed. The scriptures do not exaggerate. He was so overwhelmed by the emotion this anxious, overwhelming sorrow and grief for what lay ahead of him that the scriptures say that he sweat blood. It didn't say like he sweat blood. It said he actually physically sweat blood. This was not just a bad day. Jesus was overwhelmed in the garden by the emotions that he was feeling. And then the text goes on. It doesn't end there. Jesus goes back to his disciples and not once, not twice, but three times finds them sleeping. And I assume, in frustration, he goes, can't you stay awake? In other words, he's saying, can't you help me? Can't you see me? Why, when I'm at my worst, when I need you the most, why would you leave me? Can't you be there for me? And so on top of this soul-crushing anxiety and grief, he has this encounter with feeling alone and rejected and abandoned by not just anybody, but those closest to him. And I think some of you have walked into this room and you're sitting in that garden. I just don't, I am, I have soul crushing, overwhelming emotions. And I feel like there's no one there to help me. I feel like there's not a soul that can do anything. Not even is there a soul that can do anything. There's not even a soul that wants to do anything. I am alone and rejected and abandoned. And then to top it off, Jesus is in the garden and Judas arrives. Judas is one of his 12, hey? I think Judas gets this rap from us that he's like the bad guy. And he is the bad guy. But for Jesus, he was one of his homeboys. He was one of his crew. He was, he was the guy that was there on the Friday night having a bra. He was part of his leadership team. They were talking about ministry strategy and how they were going to take the gospel to the world. And Judas arrives and sells him. He betrays him. He sells him for a couple of copper coins. So on top of the soul-crushing grief and anxiety when nobody, not even his closest friends, would stay and pray for him, he feels alone and abandoned and rejected. On top of that, he's betrayed for a couple of silver coins by somebody he would consider as his inner circle. Jesus, sweating blood at the end of himself, goes through the garden. Why? We have to ask ourselves the question, why? 
because the author of this script made sure that before he got to the grave, before he got to the cross, before he walked the gauntlet, he went into the garden. Why did Jesus go to the garden? I believe that God wanted to make a loud statement that heaven knows, heaven feels, and heaven cares. The garden was about God revealing not just the humanness of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was fully God and fully man. Not just the humanness of Jesus, but it was God revealing all of heaven's empathy. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of one another. I don't know about you, but I feel it's a lot more appealing and attractive to follow Jesus when he's been through the garden. I feel like if he just went to the cross and he hadn't gone through the garden, I might go, you don't know. And we need to meet not just the God of the empty grave, but the God of the garden. If we have a deep revelation of who the God of the garden is, I tell you, our life here on earth will look majestically different. And I think sometimes as Christians, we've created this idea of God that he is unemotional, disconnected, or uninterested, or just doesn't understand. And I know we, maybe when I make that statement, you're like, no, no, I don't believe that. But, but a lot of the way that we live and a lot of the way that we approach God is like, well, he's, he's perfect and he's out there and he doesn't quite understand. But I believe God's saying, I stood in the garden. I went through the garden. And my English teacher would be so proud of me to be quoting To Kill a Mockingbird. Never thought I'd make a comeback on that. Mrs. Hutching, if you're out there, you did well. To Kill a Mockingbird, there's a statement that's made in there, to walk a mile in my shoes. The statement means this. Before judging someone, you must understand his experiences, challenges, thoughts, and thought processes. Before judging someone, you must understand his experiences, challenges, and thought processes. I believe that Jesus says, I sat in your garden. I'm not judging you. I understand you. I, Colin, don't know what your garden looks like or feels like. But he does. He's been there. He knows your pain, your struggle, your anxiety, your sorrow. And he doesn't just know them, church. He's felt it. Heaven cares and heaven knows because heaven's felt. The garden was desperately important in the narrative because Jesus needed to feel the weight of your garden in his garden. So God is not just available, as many of us know. We know God is available, but many of us don't quite understand that He is approachable because somehow we've written off this idea that if we feel emotional or overwhelmed or stressed or anxious or fearful or whatever it is that our garden has got going on, somehow we feel like those emotions are wrong. Emotions are not wrong, church. It's, it's how we process those emotions. What those emotions do to lead us back to Jesus, to see the face of Jesus. 
And so I believe, hopefully, after today, perhaps we would pray differently. Perhaps instead of praying this prayer, God, would you remove my stress? I'm not saying he doesn't want to remove it. I'm just saying I wonder if we would approach Jesus and go, God, I am stressed. And he would say, I know. And then you would say, I'm. Somebody else may say, I'm. God, I am overwhelmed. And he would say, I know. And some of you would begin to pray like this and say, Father, I am. I'm depressed. My soul has a sorrow that I feel like I can't bear. And he would look with love and kindness and say, I know. I've sat in that garden. I think our prayer life would change. There's no doubt God doesn't want us to sit anxious and stressed. And, but I think our approach to understand that he understands is massive. It would change the way that we approach Jesus. And you know the one difference between your garden and his? He had to go through his garden alone. You don't. He stands with you in your garden and says, I know. My prayer is that you would see Jesus differently because of the garden. Heaven knows. Let's keep reading the scripture. It goes on to say this. We'll read two verses and then I'll make the second point. It says, stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, as you will. The reference to the cup being taken is the fact that he knew he had to go to the cross. And so effectively what he was saying is, God, is there another way? The message version says it like this, my father, if there is any way, get me out of this. But please, not what I want. You, what do you want? Then the next verse says this, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for even an hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray this so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus makes two statements in the garden that I think are paramount to our faith. He says this, not my will, but your will be done in the middle of the garden. And then he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The second point that I believe is important about the garden is the word surrender. Jesus understood the garden is about surrender, not about suffering. Somehow, when we go through our garden, we can make it more about our suffering than our surrender. Now, point number two would feel drastically heavy and harsh and unempathetic unless you met Jesus of the garden who said, I know. But once we meet Jesus of the garden who sits there and says, I know, then the garden is more about surrender than it is about suffering. And the temptation is to somehow feel like the way we need to do the garden is just outlast the season of suffering. But I think there's a key to the garden that Jesus shows us that it's not about outlasting your suffering. It's about coming to Jesus and saying, I surrender. 
Now let me unpack the, the, the terminology spirit and flesh because it says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit speaks about God's leading. He's given us his Holy Spirit who will lead and prompt and convict and guard and challenge and counsel. This is the job of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit wants to do that. But the flesh speaks about our will, our way, what we want, our carnal, selfish, and ultimately evil nature. And the truth is, church, the truth is your flesh and your spirit are at enmity. They are fighting, and one will win, and one will surrender. All day, every day, in our lives, the spirit and the flesh are at war versus each other. One will win. Unattended to, the flesh will always win. Intentionally pursuing and surrendering our lives to a spirit-led, Christ-led, thy will, not my will be done, the spirit will win. But the garden has this great invitation of surrender. Will you surrender your will in the garden? Remember, the garden of Gethsemane means the oil press, the squeeze. And so what happens in the garden is we see what really is in us. Come on, let's be honest. What's really in us is not Sunday morning service. What's kind of more like what's in us is what happened on the way to Sunday morning service. Kick the dog, shout at your wife, hit the kids. Only me? Okay. But when you're in the garden, the squeeze happens. And then we see, is it my will or is it his will? Am I surrendered? Who sits on the throne? Me or Jesus? And the garden gives us this opportunity to surrender. And Jesus makes a statement in the garden, this deeply human statement. He says, God, is there any other way? Okay, this is what he's looking at. He's looking at the trajectory. He's looking at the plan. And he's going, the direction isn't desired. The outcome is not what I've wanted. The prayer doesn't seem to be being answered the way I want it to be answered. And surrender, friends, there's many definitions, but surrender means taking a humble position and embracing what is over how you would have it. Surrender is saying, not my will. And I love this statement. I'm going to read it to you. It says, spiritual surrender is an act of faith. It really is. It really is deeply spiritual to surrender. It takes, it takes faith to go, God, I, I'm not going to hold on to control. I'm not going to hold on to my way. I'm not going to, I'm going to, it's, it's an act of faith. Listen to this next line. Keeping hope alive by choosing defeat over death. I love this thought. Because much of the time surrender looks like defeat. But if you don't choose defeat over death, See, anything that we do in our own will, in our own strength, because of our own desires, because of our own wants, because of our fleshly, carnal, evil nature, will always end in death. We have to choose defeat over death. Surrender to say, God, I, I, I want this, but I choose your will, your way. I surrender. And the statement goes on to say that 
It is the first act, surrender, is the first act of coming to salvation. None of us in this room can come to Jesus unless we choose to surrender, to say, God, I was, I was going my own way, but I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior and Jesus. Thank you for giving up your life. But that is not the last time we surrender our lives. The statement goes on to say that it is the first act of those coming to salvation and the continual habit of those walking with Christ. Surrender is the continual habit of those walking with Christ. I'll never forget um, Francine, Scott's wife. Uh, she said this a couple of times, and I've heard Scott even share it from the pulpit here. She used to be our kids' church pastor, and she used to say to the kids, hey, I need you all to sit down. And kids, I don't know if you have, any of you have kids. They just never listen. So, well, they do listen, but you know what I mean. So you say, sit down. And they carry on doing their thing. And you say, guys, I need you to sit down. And carry on kind of chatting or whatever. And eventually it's like, guys, last time I'm speaking, you need to sit down. And so what would the kids do? They would sit down. So they're sitting down on the outside, but they were standing up on the inside. And how many of us, church, are sitting down on the outside, but standing up on the inside? Come to church on a Sunday and lift our hands, which is a sign of surrender. And then God goes, okay, on Monday, I'm going to ask you to keep that posture of surrender. And you go, no, my will, my plan, my desire, that surrender. So my question to you, friends, is where is God asking you to surrender? Is it in a relationship where God's going, you need to actually forgive? I know they hurt you, but my way says that you forgive those. Is it to love when you feel like you've run out of everything to give when it comes to love? Is it got to do with your finances where you said, I'm not doing it that way. I'm not going to tithe. I'm not going to give to God. That part is private. And God's starting to press and say, my friend, you need to surrender. And I know it's not as simple as this. But if you played TV games growing up and you needed to get out of a certain level, move to the next level, I think for many of us, we stay in a garden far too long suffering when surrender would move us out of the garden. So we sit over and over and over and over and God goes, do you know the way out? The way out is surrender, my friend. And it looks like defeat, but it doesn't end in death. It's why in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. My life does not belong to me. So God, what you want, when you want, where you want, how much you want is yours. You speak, I do. And this is the place that God wants all of us to get to. And so I believe that the garden prepared him to run the gauntlet. And much of the plan and the purpose of God, the gauntlet, the race, 
the plan, the purpose, the destiny, the call of God over our lives will be dealt with in the garden. Much of us are not running the gauntlet that Christ has set out for us because we're still in the garden thinking it's more about me than it is about surrender. Thinking it's more about suffering and my story and God. God, I, I surrender. Because what God does in the, in the garden sets Jesus up for the gauntlet. I think it was a master stroke of the author of heaven and earth to put the garden before the gauntlet knowing that there was something of the humanity of Jesus but then the death of the humanness of man that had to take place in the garden. So if the garden prepared him to run the gauntlet, my question and final point today is what prepared him for the garden? What prepared Jesus for the garden? Now I don't know if you how well you know your scriptures. But before the garden, a pretty significant and special moment took place. Jesus gathered his disciples and did one of a couple of things, but one of what he did is that he took communion. It was this powerful moment where Jesus takes the bread and he begins to break the bread and he gives it to his disciples. And he says, this is my body. You do this in remembrance of me. And then he takes the wine and he says, this is my blood. And he says, because of my blood, because of my stripes, not only have your sins been forgiven, but your body has been healed. By my stripes and my, by my blood, you are healed. Now, you may feel like this is an insignificant moment. But I believe it's deeply significant. I believe what Jesus is saying is the way we enter our garden, the way we get through our garden is by reminding ourselves of who Jesus is. The act of communion was a reminder of the death and the sacrifice and the price that was paid. And I tell you, friends and family, that honestly, we forget in the garden everything that Jesus did for us. I think we need to have an attack, an approach to the garden that is a communion approach. Luke 22 verse 19 says this, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. The garden is so much more possible when we're remembering all that Jesus has done for us. You were lost, but you were found. You were bound, but now you're free. You were blind, but now you see. When we approach the garden with a communion vantage point, and the Bible speaks about healing in the communion. Physical healing, but I believe there's emotional healing and even relational, I, I, I believe there's something deeply sacred when we take communion. And I feel like we've, we've lost sometimes the sacredness of what this meal means. Perhaps you've taken it on a Sunday or at an Easter service, and, but there's something about this meal. I've heard these words 
over and over and over, burnt out, fatigued, overwhelmed, mental health, depressed. And I believe, church, that we, if we appropriate the meal of Jesus, the, 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 the emotions, the raw and honest emotions that we're experiencing in the garden, if we appropriate the body of Christ and the blood that was shed on our behalf, if we truly believe and look to the work of the cross and the death of Jesus, I believe it, uh, the, the garden experience doesn't actually get less, but the magnitude and the magnificence and the power of what Jesus did for us just starts to make the garden pale in comparison. Let's not diminish. In fact, 1 Corinthians says, because we don't discern the body of Christ, many have fallen asleep prematurely or got sick, And I look around and I see a sick, broken, even if you haven't fallen asleep prematurely, died prematurely, the spiritual awakening that needs to happen in the body of Christ is lying dormant and dead because we're not appropriating and discerning the body of Christ. We haven't looked at what Jesus has done on the cross and says the garden, He, yes, heaven knows. Yes, heaven engages. Yes, there's the empathy of heaven, but there really is the ability to surrender and say, God, not my will. And how on God's earth are we gonna do that? By lifting up the body of Christ the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of the Lamb that was shed on our behalf. And I'm not meaning this figuratively, church. I'm literally meaning that you and I should be taking communion in our homes. My wife and I were talking this week, we're not doing it enough. So I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching to me. My kids have been sick for the last three weeks and somehow, and I, I totally believe in medicine and doctors, and, but somehow I, like, I, I think if I just get them to the doctor, then they get antibiotics and then all of a sudden the anxiety in my life kind of drops down and I'm like, they'll be fine. How have I appropriated medicine more than the body? Jensen Franklin says this. He says, of all the things in our faith, God gives us nothing physical to hold on to. Everything in our faith is faith, except communion. Somehow I get to hold on to communion. Somehow Jesus is like, I want you to see it. I want you to hold it. I want you to remember it. I don't know if you've ever thought about how bread is made or wine is made. We don't take wheat or flour and pop some butter on and pop it into our mouths and go, hmm, delicious. No, you take wheat and flour and you beat it and you turn it and you pound it and you put it through the fire. I don't know if you've ever taken wine, thought about how wine was created. You don't go to a grape and go, here's a fermented grape. How delicious. No, that grape is taken and it is crushed and it is trodden on and it is pressed and then it is left in the dark. And our Savior went through all of that in the garden and in the cross so that you and I could remember, do this in remembrance of me. Our Savior crushed 
left in the darkness, went through the fire, bruised for our iniquities, so that you and I could go through the garden with a communion strategy that says daily I get up and I do not forget all that He has done for me, all of my sins, all of my diseases, taken care of on the cross. Let's appropriate the body of Christ. And so very strategically all the way through this series, we're going to be singing this song in Christ alone. Church, we need to get back to in Christ alone. I put my trust in Christ alone. Yes, heaven knows the garden is greatly intentional. Friend, you need to surrender. Otherwise, you will never run the gauntlet that Jesus has set out for you. And then you and I are going to do that, not in our own strength, not in our own might, not in our own Christianity, but by appropriating and discerning the body of Christ that says, by His body, by His stripes, by His blood. And so I'm going to ask the band to come up and we're going to sing the song in Christ alone again. And there's communion on everybody's chairs. And before I lose anybody's, I really want to say this. This will be my prayer all week. Not the juice. Not the biscuit. There's nothing about the juice and the biscuit. I'm looking at my friends, Lizelle and Steve. They want to take communion at their wedding. And they forgot the communion. So we found... What did we find? We found Ferrero Rochers. And we took communion with Ferrero Rochers. And I tell you that because it's got nothing to do with the, with the juice and the biscuit. It's got everything for you right now about you appropriating your faith and looking and remembering what Christ did for you. And I believe that there will be healing in this room today. Right now. Bodies are going to be made well. Believe it. Wombs are going to be healed and restored to give childbirth. Mental health, depression, and anxiety is going to be healed in the name of Jesus. Right now, because we appropriate the body of Christ. I believe, friends, that there are some of you sitting here online and in the room that are backslidden. You are far from God. And right now, in an act of humility, you look again at the work of the cross and immediately your Savior will meet you. But before we do that, the Bible is very clear that we cannot take communion unless we know Jesus. And so before we sing a song, I'd love all of you to close your eyes. And I'd love to pray a prayer that allows you to ask Jesus to come and be your Lord and Savior. Many of us in the room have done it. Every single week, we create a moment for you to respond. It is the most important prayer you will ever pray. It is the first act of surrender. Everybody's eyes closed. We're not going to embarrass you, but we believe in responding. 
So I'm going to ask that you would raise your hand and then pop it straight back down and we're going to all pray together. Come on, if you're here and you just, you know, you need to make peace with God. You need to surrender your life to Jesus. Won't you be brave enough just to stick your hand in the air? Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. You can pop your hands back down. I've seen at least two hands go up. Anybody in the mezzanine right now? You want to stick up your hand? Awesome. Church, won't you repeat after me? Those who are praying this prayer for the first time, we're praying it with you. We could not be more ecstatic to be praying a prayer of salvation with you. You just pray this simple prayer to your Father in heaven. Won't you repeat after me? Say, Dear Lord Jesus, today I surrender. Thank you for dying on the cross, for taking all my sin and all my shame and nailing it to that cross once and for all. Jesus, today, I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask that you keep your eyes closed and you can respond in whatever way you feel appropriate in this moment. You've got communion. You can take it as a family. You can take it as an individual. You can get down on your knees. You can stand up to your feet. The worship team are not going to lead us in a song. The worship team are going to lead us into the presence of God. And we are going to be able to appropriate the body and the blood of Christ. And miracles are going to take place in this room today.